Our, our second reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. Um, we're still on the day of Pentecost. We're about one-third of the way down in Peter's sermon. This is the very first sermon in the history of the church. Hear the word of God. Men and women of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make known to, uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers and sisters, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. For he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) So February is Black History Month. Black History Month was started as Negro History Month in 1926. Carter Woodson, that's a picture of him there. I don't know if you know Carter Woodson, but everyone should know Carter Woodson. Carter Woodson was the young historian who founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. He launched and edited for many years the Journal of Negro History, which continues in print uh, even to this day. And in 1926, when he was 51 years old, he single-handedly created Negro History Week. Now, he chose the second week of February because it coincided with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, February 12th, and Frederick Douglass, February 14th. Now, over time, the week stretched into a month, and the recognition of this special time has reached beyond the black community to the nation as a whole. Black history, of course, is American history. And there's no way to tell the story of the United States without understanding and appreciating the contributions of African Americans to the life and to the culture of this nation. 
But history is not just an idle hobby for people who like old buildings and dusty books. For Woodson, who earned his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1912, teaching black history to his community was essential for the survival of that community. Woodson wrote, If a race has no history... It has no worthwhile traditions. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and it stands in danger of being exterminated. The American Indians left no continuous record. He did not appreciate the value of tradition. Where is he today? The Hebrews keenly appreciated the value of tradition as is attested by the Bible itself. In spite of worldwide persecution, therefore he, the Hebrew, is a great factor in our civilization. What Woodson says is true not only of races and people, but also of churches. Churches that are unaware of their history run the risk of disappearing, of losing their future. When I arrived at HVPC in 2005, members told me lots and lots of stories about this congregation of things in the past as they had remembered them. Those memories are important, and I love hearing those stories. But there is a difference between memory and history. Because memory has a way of playing tricks on us. Because our personal point of view needs to be broadened by the reports of other reliable witnesses. A number of years ago, I worked with my Uncle Stanley uh, to write a memoir about his life aboard the USS Biscayne during the Second World War. There were a number of stories that Uncle Stanley loved to tell about the war. Some of you know these stories because you knew him. There were a number of stories that he told over and over again through the years. He had them down pat. But a couple of those stories, when I began to investigate, just didn't line up with what the official records of the U.S. Navy said. Uncle Stanley remembering being off the coast of Italy on his birthday when, in fact, when you check the records, you realize that he was steaming his way to San Francisco on that day, for example. History sorts out and makes sense of the memories of a community. It makes sense of how things fit together by comparing different points of view. It explains what leads to what. And that's what makes history important for us today. Because we didn't get here by ourselves. There were people who went before us who blazed the trail. I'm just at the beginning of writing my doctoral dissertation. When it's done, it will contain a new history of this congregation, a congregation that opened its doors while Abraham Lincoln was in the White House, a congregation whose first pastor left Huntington Valley to become a missionary among freed blacks in the South during the Civil War. And a piece of that history, a piece of our history, will be about our church's relationship with the African-American community here in Lower Moreland over the course of more than 150 years. And I wouldn't be able to do my work if it weren't for pioneers like Carter Woodson, who did so much for American history by helping us all remember the lives and the work and the accomplishment of African Americans. 
Both of our readings this morning are works of history. First Kings and the Acts of the Apostles are holy histories. They're histories of God at work among his people. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had fallen on 120 men and women gathered in the upper room. They are filled with power and they begin to tell people out in the streets about Jesus. They speak with great boldness. And then something very weird happens. Everyone hears these 120 men and women talking in their own language. Parthians hear the news in their language. Elamites hear the news in their language. There were people from all over the world in Jerusalem that day, but they all heard the followers of Jesus preaching in their own language. It was an unbelievable miracle. Nothing like this had ever happened. It was a miracle involving and witnessed by thousands of people. It was a miracle and a spectacle that was impossible to ignore. Now, without a doubt, this multi-language preaching caused a huge commotion. It caused a near riot in the city. And then Peter, in the midst of all of this commotion, with the 11 apostles standing behind him, begins to preach. He stands up and he preaches. And he has to preach loudly because of all of the noises. The scripture says that he lifted up his voice, and it's the only time that that phrase is used in the Bible related to preaching. Peter began to preach loudly, to shout, to be heard over the hubbub in the city streets. And he begins by explaining what's going on with these 120 men and women all boldly talking about Jesus in all kinds of different languages. Peter explains that this miracle that they are witnessing is a fulfillment of a prophecy that the prophet Joel had given saying that in the last days that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all kinds of people and both men and women would prophesy. Now, skeptics at the time thought that these followers of Jesus were drunk. But Peter explains, no, they're not drunk. But a prophecy regarding the last days is being fulfilled in front of your eyes. Peter explains what was happening right there on the day of Pentecost by pointing them back to a prophecy about the last days found in the book of Joel. That's where Peter starts his sermon. That's what we looked at Two weeks ago. Today we continue in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. After explaining what all of this jabbering, prophesying by 120 men and women was all about, Peter then talks about some events that are a little more distant in the past, but still recent history. He talks about what the listeners to his sermon were doing in the last couple of months. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. It's been 50 days since Jesus was crucified. And here's what Peter says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that's an alarming thing to say in a sermon. The preacher accuses the people who were listening to the sermon of having killed someone. And not just anyone. But killing a very special person, a person attested or certified or endorsed by God Almighty. How many converts do you think you could win to your cause by accusing them of murder? Well, in this case it was about 3,000. In this sermon, Peter is talking to people who are familiar with Jesus. Jesus needs no introduction to this crowd. And there are three things that Peter says about Jesus in this part of the sermon, all of them supernatural. The first thing that Peter says about Jesus is that Jesus performed miracles by the power of God. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, is how Peter puts it in our passage from Acts chapter 2. Mighty works, wonders, signs, these are just three ways of saying miracles. Our English word miracle comes from the Latin, so it doesn't show up very often in our translations of the Bible. Mighty works, wonders, and signs are the standard words in the New Testament for what we call miracles. These are things that do not have a natural explanation. These are things that God did through Jesus to demonstrate to the people who saw Jesus that Jesus was plugged into something beyond this world. The purpose of the miracles was to give God's seal of approval, his certification, his attestation that Jesus wasn't just talking for himself, that he was speaking for God Almighty. Now, notice that Jesus performing miracles is not even a question on the day of Pentecost. It's not even a question for Peter. There are some people today and throughout other times in history who do not believe in supernatural things, who do not take the Bible seriously when it talks about supernatural things. They uh, explain away the miracle stories. And they drain them of their supernatural power. And so sometimes in our time, it's necessary to have a conversation with skeptics about why these reports of the miracles of Jesus are reliable. But Peter's not interested in that question at all. He knows, and everyone else in the crowd knows, that Jesus not so long ago was doing some very crazy and some very spooky stuff in and around Jerusalem. Everybody knows this. It's only been two months ago that he raised Lazarus from the dead and created a near riot. Jesus was an authentic miracle worker and it's not even open for debate. So the first thing Peter says about Jesus is that he performed miracles And that those miracles were God's endorsement. The second thing Peter says about Jesus is that Jesus was crucified according to God's plan. We read, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That means by the hands of the Romans. Peter 
doesn't expand on this idea here, but the fact that the death of Jesus was always part of God's plan is both a great mystery and a great comfort. For it shows us God's power over circumstances that seem wildly out of control. And it shows us God's deep love for us from all eternity. The death of Jesus does not take God by surprise. Since the foundation of the world, the crucifixion has been part of God's plan of redemption. It's been part of God's plan for our salvation. The third thing that Peter says about Jesus is that Jesus was raised from the dead as foretold in the word of God. We read, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As with the miracles of Jesus, Peter doesn't make a big deal about proving that Jesus was raised from the dead. 500 people had seen the resurrected Jesus. And if there were 500 eyewitnesses, how many more people knew someone who had seen the resurrected Jesus? Peter takes it for granted that his audience knows that Jesus was raised from the dead. Peter doesn't try to prove that the resurrection happened. Everybody knows that. What Peter is interested in, instead, is that they understand that this resurrection had been foretold prophetically in Psalm 16. Peter quotes four verses from from that psalm, including this key verse. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. So that's Acts 4.27, but he's quoting Psalm 16.10. Peter does... A little bit of exegetical explanation here, and it can be a little confusing in this part of the sermon, but his point is simple. King David, who wrote Psalm 16, is not talking about himself in this psalm. Rather, King David is talking about one of his descendants, the promised Messiah. Hades is the Greek word for the place of the dead. It's not the same as hell. And to see corruption means to to rot, to turn to goo. So David can't be talking about himself when he says that uh, he wouldn't go to Hades or see corruption because, of course, David did go to the place of the dead and David's body did rot. And everyone in Jerusalem knew where David's tomb could be found on the south side of the city. So the three things that Peter tells the crowd about Jesus, all of them supernatural things, all of them about God's special relationship with Jesus are these. First, that Jesus performed miracles by the power of God. Second, that Jesus was crucified according to the plan of God. And third, that Jesus was raised from the dead as was foretold in the word of God. These three supernatural facts about Jesus are the setup of a punchline. And you killed him. You killed this Lord that I've been talking about. You killed the Christ. You killed him. 
That's the punchline. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, how do you respond to that? You're there in the crowd hearing Peter preach, this fisherman turned prophet, and he's calling you a murderer of a very special sort that you actually murdered the Messiah, the the one that we've been waiting for for all of this time. What do you say? What could be worse? Is there anything worse than murdering God's anointed one? And it wasn't like they could say, we didn't know. Because the miracles had been God's endorsement of this man. Remember Nicodemus? He was a religious Jew who came to Jesus by night so that he wouldn't be seen. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, miracles, that you do unless God is with him. The people who killed Jesus knew The signs, the miracles were God's attestation. They were God's certification. The people who killed Jesus knew. They knew they were opposing God. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. Now maybe they didn't fully understand, but they understood enough. You don't have to know every jot and tittle of the law to know the difference between right and wrong. And Peter, this fisherman turned prophet filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up in front of thousands of people and says, you crucified the Lord. (laughs) You crucified the Christ. That's one way to preach a sermon. That's how Peter preached the very first sermon in the history of the church. When I was at Princeton Seminary, one of my preaching professors used to remind us that every sermon must lead to the good news. Even if the biblical text is grim and hard, the slaughter of innocents, the rape of Dinah, even those hard texts, the preacher's job is to find the good news. So where's the good news? When the Apostle Peter stands before you and thunders and roars at you and accuses you of having killed God's anointed one. Why should I be pleased? Why should I be blessed to have been in the crowd on Pentecost Day? Well, because the path to salvation always begins with conviction and repentance. Conviction, repentance, salvation. Conviction, repentance, salvation. Conviction, repentance, salvation. That is the sequence of the gospel. There is no way to get to the good news that we are redeemed without having first heard the bad news that we killed them. That Pentecost day, the people listening to Peter's sermon were deeply convicted. They were mortified. They were grieved by what they had done. They were cut to the heart. They asked Peter, what should we do? That's a good question. What should we do when we're confronted by others with our own sin? What should we do when someone points out to us where we've gotten off the track? Well, there are all kinds of worldly, fleshly strategies. Some hire a fancy lawyer. Some go on the attack. Some create a diversion. 
Some shift the blame to someone else. Some justify their actions. Some plead ignorance. I don't know what it is about the human heart that makes it so afraid of taking responsibility for its own sin. Some people go so far as to deny the law of God. Hey, if there's no law, then I certainly can't be guilty of sin. Problem solved. The only problem with denial and diversion is that it doesn't get to the root of the problem. And that problem will destroy us from within. Now, sin destroys people around us. Sin destroys relationships with other people. But it also destroys us internally. And so the proper and healthy response to uncovered sin is not denial or diversion. It's repentance. In response to the question, brothers and sisters, what should we do? Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you might remember, I hope you remember, if you don't remember, you should tattoo this on your arm. The very first word of the preaching of both Jesus and John the baptizer, the very first word of preaching is repent. The good news begins with the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The good news always begins with the word repent. Now next week we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to be baptized. But this week I just want to draw our attention to this word repent. Now some of you know that in Greek this word means to change your mind. Metanoia is the word in Greek. So to change your thinking on something. In Hebrew the word for repentance is to change your direction. Okay, you're going this way, you're going to turn around, you're going to go that way. So repentance is always about changing something. To repent is not the same as to regret or to feel bad about something. The people that Peter uh, is preaching to, they do feel bad. They do regret what they've done. And so then they ask Peter, what should we do? And he doesn't say, well, continue to feel bad about it. He doesn't say continue to regret it, what he says is repent. Peter tells them that on top of their regret, they need to add repentance. They need to change their minds. They need to head off in in a new direction. And again, we're going to talk more about that new direction next week. But it does involve baptism, and it involves a commitment to a new way of life. Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then 3,000 people make that decision that day, the first day of the church. That's church growth. Starts with 120, and it goes up to 3,120 in one day. Okay, I like that. Mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, a sermon accusing people of being murderers, and 3,000 people in the church. Okay? I don't know. It sounds to me like a model for church growth. So now here's the good news for us. All of us here in this room this morning are sinners. Welcome to the club. I am the worst of the sinners in this room. I have done things that you haven't done and I should have known better. But when we repent and turn away from our way and turn to God's way, God receives us. He welcomes us. He gives us a new life. And if he can do that 
for people who actually crucified Jesus? Wow, he can do it for us. We haven't done anything quite so bad as that. If you feel the burden and the conviction of unrepented sin, then I invite you to turn to Christ today. Stop making excuses. Repent. Own your responsibility. Confess your sins to God. Commit yourself to Christ. Let Him be your Lord and Messiah. Receive forgiveness for your sins, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't been baptized, what in the world are you waiting for? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is God's word for us today. That is God's good news for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we just marvel uh, at your whew, persistent pursuing love of us. Lord, we confess that uh, so often we have done the wrong things and so often we've known that we've done the wrong things and so often we've covered up the wrong things that we've done. But every once in a while we do hear your Holy Spirit and it does convict us of our sin and of our of our need for forgiveness. Lord, we pray this day that um, that we would replace that spirit of cowering fear and guilt, that we would replace all of that with a spirit of adoption, that we would know that we are beloved by you, that we're forgiven by you. I pray that we would know that because uh, we have chosen to follow Christ and to allow his death on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord Jesus, we can't do that without your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit this morning to make that a reality uh, in our lives. For those of us who have never made a commitment to Christ, we pray that you would enable us uh, to do that today uh, for the first time. May this be the the day of our salvation. And for those of us who have made uh, commitments to Christ in the past, may this be a day to just be reminded of what it is that we have in Christ. Freedom, uh, that no burden of guilt, that we are received and accepted and cleansed and blessed by you because you love us and because your son died for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.